Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Eric Grimmer Solom. He is Professor of History and German Studies at Wesleyan University. He was previously a Harper Fellow at the University of Chicago. And today we are discussing his book, Learning Empire Globalization and the German Quest for World Status published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dr. Grimmer Solom. Thank you. Professor, why did you write this book? Well, the book uh, started off as a series of explorations that were sparked by questions that I had about the network of contacts that the German economist Gustav Schmoller maintained over his lifetime to students and colleagues in North America, Japan, and elsewhere in the world. So in the process of um, doing the work for my first book, which grew out of a a doctoral dissertation, I discovered um, that these uh, letter correspondences he maintained uh, with these figures um, were really quite remarkable. Uh, And they they sort of highlighted the global scholarly connections that German universities uh, had to the rest of the world, German university professors had to the rest of the world, and the keynote of connection that the universities played um, in connecting Germany to the world. And that this really predated Germany's formal imperial and colonial gambits. And you know, as remarkable to me was the fact that many of uh, Gustav Schmoller's German students and colleagues took advantage of those connections and spent years, and in some cases, many years, working, researching, or teaching overseas in the United States, South America, Japan, China, Southeast Asia, Africa, the Ottoman Empire, and even Russia. Uh, I was then also quite surprised to discover how prominent many of them became in German imperial diplomacy, colonial policy, and naval affairs. Um, and their involvement can be traced to informal German policy from the 1880s to 1890s all the way through the First World War. So it seemed to me that uh, the existing historiography had largely omitted them as significant agents in Germany's uh, international policy. Um, that's also one of the problems of historical narratives built exclusively on the official record and correspondences of the actions of statesmen. So many informal lines of influence shaped German foreign policy in these decades. And the expertise of people that I explore in the book uh, was drawn on actively by uh, German foreign policy uh, networks, by the German foreign office, by the naval offices, and the colonial office. That influence is often missing in the official record left behind in government papers that highlight, the, to me, the limitations of histories that draw almost exclusively from the official record left in archives. So it took me many years to find the sources, uh, but as the book gradually took form, it became clear to me that there was an extraordinary story to be told here from the perspective of, the, of a prosopography of these men, 
following them on their wide ranging travels to explore how their perspective on the world took them uh, uh, from the world back to Germany and how that eventually came to influence Germany's imperial politics in the era that we called world policy, which begins around 1895. I also wrote this book because I think the new base of sources that I uncovered sheds new light on the era, highlighting the influential role that these university-trained middle-class and broadly politically liberal men um, played in, imperial, in German imperial policy. And that's not how we normally think of German imperial policy, uh, given uh, the tendencies of, uh, of historiography. What would you say then is the thesis of your book? Well, I think in a nutshell, the thesis of the book is that German Weltpolitik, that is German imperial ambitions and naval policy after about 1895, was in many respects quite similar to the liberal imperialism of Great Britain and the United States. And that can be explained in part due to the extraordinary, yet, as I suggest, largely overlooked influence that German middle classes had on the contours of that policy. Pre-First World War, globalization generated points of conflict, instabilities, and risks. German world policy was a response to these, not a manipulative socialist ruse by the Kaiser and conservative elites to prevent political reform in Germany. Germany was embedded in an international system being shaken up, not only by its own growing economic power, but also by the rise of new up-and-coming world powers, the United States and Japan in particular. The circle of globetrotting economists that I investigated in Learning Empire were key figures in disseminating information about this world and in the formation of what I call German imperial mindscapes in that era. That is, an imagined geography of opportunity, prosperity, and power. This mindscape resonated with the German middle class public and proved to be remarkably durable from peacetime into war. In radicalized form, this imperial mindscape come to shape German policy in the Weimar Republic and even under National Socialism. So if we want to really understand the course of German history in the 20th century, we have to understand how these imagined geographies came into being through contact with the rest of the world and how they were disseminated through such things as naval and colonial propaganda in the war aims debate during the First World War and through other processes. By focusing new, too narrowly on European great power politics, on the Anglo-German uh, antagonism that grew after 1897 or the African scramble, we tend to come up with an incomplete perspective from my uh, point of view. And it's a very distorted perspective at that. There is a running leitmotif in the book of your being very critical of the Wilhelmstrasse, the German foreign office. Why is that? Well, um, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that um, the Wilhelmstrasse had a very rigid Europe-centered perspective on German diplomacy and did not take uh, at all very seriously the tectonic shifts that were taking place elsewhere in the world, particularly the rise of the United States, the rise of Japan, and the importance of important uh, extra-European sites of conflict and rivalry were, such as, for example, um, China. Um, and uh, the... The, the tendency uh, to view, again, uh, such things as, for example, Anglo-Russian antagonism as basically set in stone um, meant that um, there were perceptions of latitudes that Germany had vis-a-vis -vis the other great powers. And that meant also opportunities that were perceived um, after around 1897 to um, expand Germany's uh, sphere, of, sphere of interest, 
potentially also expand its colonial holdings in Africa and elsewhere in the world, that in fact, um, once Germany embarked on a more aggressive foreign policy would in turn lead to the response of the other great powers and ultimately, of course, the response of Britain and Russia um, that ultimately led or ultimately contributed to, maybe even paved the way to the, uh, the Anglo-Russian Entente, uh, which of course caught the Germans completely by surprise. Uh, so there's that. And then there's also the, the, just the remarkable record of, of, of incompetence in the foreign office. Um, when it came to such things as, uh, you know, Germany's engagement in Japan, which was quite extraordinary, and the way it sort of squandered the immense capital that Germany had with Japan in its unwise uh, gambit to try and cozy up with the Russians during the, um, the first uh, 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 Sino-Japanese War in 1895, which, you know, basically yielded nothing, but of course harvested the lasting hostility of the Japanese, even after the Germans had played such an important role in Japan's modernization in the 1880s. Many other examples include, of course, the sort of misguided Russophobic perspective that many of the Willemstrasse had, um, which of course made it uh, very difficult to develop um, uh, you know, a more constructive diplomacy vis-a-vis Russia, potentially also cleaving Russia away from its alliance with, with France. There are many common lines of interest that Germany and Russia had before the First World War that um, some of the people that I explore in the book um, were, uh, were key in, uh, in trying to uh, explore and to develop. Um, but again, uh, many of these initiatives came up against um, foreign office uh, aloofness, oftentimes complete indifference. Um, so I, I, you know, this, these are just a few examples. I could give many, many others. Um, you know, the, the Foreign Office record is very self-serving and it uh, presents a, 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 you know, oftentimes a, a more rosy picture than in fact um, one gets by uh, exploring other sources and using other sources to try and read between the lines of those foreign, policy, those foreign office uh, sources. Um, and as I discovered, the Foreign Office itself drew very, very heavily from um, experts such as the uh, such as the the men that I explore in the book, I mean the, some of the figures were without any question the leading experts on North America, leading experts on Japan and China, and uh, they were often drawn into um, providing uh, the Foreign Office with important information, uh, important insights that of course uh, don't find their way into or are only marginally discussed in any of the existing or, or remaining uh, records of the foreign office. So, um, you know, this was, a, this was a, a perception that many of the figures that I explored in the book themselves had of the foreign office. I mean, Hermann Schumacher, who was an incredibly uh, well-traveled uh, individual spending you know, years traveling through China, and Southeast Asia, North America, even Russia. Um, this was someone that uh, was given privileged access to foreign office files on on China, for example, and he came away from an exhaustive study of those files with the impression that uh, the Foreign Office really was completely out of its depth and that many of the sources that it had, uh, uh, that he knew of, of course, from his reading of, uh, of British uh, sources, and they were in fact really derivative of and, and inferior to what he knew that the British had collected on China. So 
that perception of, of, of ineptitude and incompetence was something that the figures that I studied in the book themselves, uh, it was a perspective that they had themselves at the foreign office. What do you mean exactly by the term liberal imperialism as you employed in the book? Well, um, by liberal imperialism, uh, I mean the projection outward of certain liberal values and ideals, which I discuss at length in the introduction of the book. And so the ambition was to become the equal of the other great world powers. And in practice, that meant gaining both formal colonies and informal spheres of influence. German liberal imperialists tended to be critical of the sort of excessive state bureaucratic management and the abusive practices of colonial uh, monopoly concession companies. That is, they were very critical of how German colonial policy had been pursued in the past. Uh, their hope was that through private investments, through investments in things like railways, through a more enlightened scientific form of colonial policy, uh, a, a, you know, a new page could be turned in colonial uh, management that would uh, give native people greater incentives, turn them into productive parts of the German colonial empire. The hope was to turn the colonies into productive sources of key raw materials, uh, a market in, uh, for German industrial goods, and as a destination for would-be German settlers, somewhat on the model of the British dominions and some other British uh, colonial holdings. I mean, there was a belief that settler colonies you know, fostered self-reliance, self-government, social mobility. And there, the example of the United States and Canada loomed very large. And that, that experience of, of that, colonial, that settler colonial experience would ultimately collect correct defects in Germany's uh, national character from centuries of princely tutelage and status snobbery. So, you know, they, they prioritized uh, civil society, market forces um, in social order. Uh, they were very much advocates, but clearly also of uh, private investment and private initiative, in that sense, very much uh, liberals. Um, in the Willamette period, I mean, uh, looking more specifically at the period uh, that I really focus on in the book, German liberal imperialists aspired to expand German informal empire via such investments. They also were advocates of a significant naval presence to protect uh, those interests and to also um, uh, you know, integrate the, uh, the, the metropole with its colonies. Um, and uh, they were also uh, very much interested, rather than formal colonies, also in informal colonies and informal spheres of interest, uh, or, or I should say spheres of interest, such as, for example, in the Ottoman Empire, China, Latin America. And you know, the single most important feature of this liberal imperialism was their their deep investment in the German Navy. The German Navy as a symbol of national unity and as a guarantor of Germany's maritime destiny as a leading trading and aspiring world power. And here we have to remember too that Germany was reacting and responding to what was going on in the rest of the world. Germany was not the only uh, country that was embarking on, a, on, on expanding its, its Navy. Uh, the same thing was going on of course also in the United States and Japan and of course, a naval arms race had been sparked by Britain's articulation of a two-power standard with the Naval Defense Act of 1889, which of course had led to spiraling, um, uh, spiraling, uh, uh, spiraling investment in, 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 in naval power, uh, both in Britain and France and in Russia. I, overall, the tone of the book about uh, both Weltpolitik 
as well as the uh, Tirpitz um, Navy beginning in 1897 onwards, it tends to be much more, how should I put it, much less critical than what one reads in, the, in much of the existing scholarly literature, and particularly, of course, in the Bielefeld School associated with uh, Hans Ulrich Wheeler, the Sonderweg School. Why is that? Well, I, I, I don't think it's actually apologetic of Tirpitz at all. In fact, I think if you uh, read closely the last half of the book, hey, I, I wouldn't really... say apologetic so much as less critical. Less critical. Well, I think that what I what I don't see is I don't see the, for example, the naval gambit as a diversionary, uh, a diversionary tactic to to dominate the social democrats by basically buying the allegiance of the middle classes. I don't see it as a as a way of uh, of, of basically solidifying an authoritarian system um, and preventing uh, social reforms, which was the you know which was the the tendency. And the tenor certainly of Wheeler, uh, but especially also um, uh, 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 others in the in the in the in the in the Bielefeld School, um, in particular uh, Volker Berkhan, his book on 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 the Tirpitz plan. Um, you know the the evidence for that is is, is rather uh, weak. And in fact, uh, I think uh, if you lose the perspective of the rest of the world, which I think the that uh, school of uh, German historiography tended to do by focusing only on German domestic pathologies, political pathologies, you lose sight of the fact that Germany was, you know, basically in a context of imperial contest, imperial rivalry with other powers. It was involved in, of course, also a colonial gambit that it involved it in, uh, in rivalry with other powers in Europe. And it also overlooks the fact that we have the United States and Japan emerging as, uh, as, as would-be or as aspiring world powers. And that that also was shaking up the, the global system, which in turn was also shaking up and changing the European balance of power. So, uh, you know, the, the decision to construct a Navy um, would, have, would have occurred with or without Tirpitz. So certainly to expand the German Navy would have occurred with or without Tirpitz. It just so happens that it went down a particular track of constructing a large battleship navy, a so-called risk fleet, in large part because of the influence of Tirpitz and uh, the, 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 the then currency of uh, fashionable naval doctrines disseminated by Alfred Thayer Mahan, this, the, the, this, this idea of, uh, of the importance of decisive battle, of large battleship navies, ultimately as having to grow or being part and parcel of the expansion of, of colonial empire, of course, uh, based on you know, numerous fallacious assumptions, which we could get into, um, but nonetheless, which had enormous attraction at the time because of the, uh, the, the peaceful logic of deterrence that sort of was uh, part and parcel of, the, of, of that strategy, the modern technology that it embodied. The, uh, of course, the, the, the Navy itself had a much... Um, more meritocratic structure. And so the, the, the Navy was also perceived very much more as a modern force, the cutting edge of new technologies. And so it could also be assured of tremendous middle-class enthusiasm and support, which it of course did gain in Imperial Germany. And um, the Tirpitz plan, um, you know, basically uh, was strained profoundly, especially after the introduction of dreadnoughts, uh, 
dreadnought weapons by, by the British. I mean, the, the Germans should have been deterred at, at least by, 18, by 1905 from continuing down that track, but they weren't. And there, of course, one has to understand the psychology of the naval's arm, naval arms race and the role it ultimately played, um, the, way, the role that the Navy came to play as one of perhaps the only real markers of uh, Germany's uh, world policy, right? I mean, the many other areas, many other arenas, Germany's world policy had delivered very little. In fact, it, uh, it basically harvested a great deal of animosity from the other powers as a consequence of the zigzag course that world policy took. It had no real clear aims. Uh, it uh, was certainly interested in being, being, uh, being everywhere, being involved everywhere, asserting German interests uh, wherever uh, it, they could be asserted, but without really uh, much to show. And so the Navy, the battleship Navy, the naval arms race with Britain became one of the last great tests of whether Germany could uh, become one of these uh, aspiring great world powers. Um, and of course, Germany's financial fragility uh, made that impossible so that by 1909, um, the financial basis for continuing with this with this uh, naval arms buildup was already, um, uh, you know, already lacking, and then, of course they more or less threw in the towel uh, in continuing uh, to challenge the British um, by 1912-13, when of course it was abundantly clear that they had neglected their land forces on which Germany's security really depended, and so it was a huge fiasco. This construction of the navy in the end, but I think when one has to understand it in the context of the 1890s, of the, of the arms race, which was already going on between Britain uh, and France and Russia, uh, uh, the, the fashionability of these doctrines, these new naval doctrines, of course, the, the material interests involved in constructing navies have to be considered as well. Uh, the, the, the lobbies involved in constructing navies, the British Navy League, the German Navy League, all of these are part of that story. And I think the claim that uh, it, this was simply a ruse, simply a way of manipulating uh, the, the, the domestic German political situation in order to preserve an authoritarian status quo, I think is, misses that entirely. And I think we can't really understand navalism and the high seas fleet that was constructed by looking only at German domestic politics. And I received the same, uh, or appeared to pick up from reading the book, the same um, aspect in vis-a-vis -vis Bernhard von Bülow that uh, in, in your, your reading, he's less, less to be criticized than is usually the case in much of the scholarly literature. literature. Probably the best example being the uh, Lehrman book, which uh, a title which has it all, The Chancellor's Courtier. In your reading, from what I can judge, you're less critical of him than many other scholars. Why is that? Well, I think that, I think that in the attempt to pin blame for the failure of Weltpolitik, I mean, Bülow, of course, you know, he's inescapable. He clearly was an important architect um, of that policy. But I think one tends to overlook the extent to which Tirpitz's own foreign policy was also very much shackled by um, the, 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 the gambit to build a navy. Uh, and I think the, the, this construction of a large battleship navy 
um, rather than a cruiser force, which might have been more prudent, especially if the interest was to make Germany more alliance worthy or more more uh, more attractive as an alliance partner, was a was a real was a real flaw, I think, ultimately. In, uh, and, and ultimately made it very difficult for Germany to have the kind of flexibility that it needed to react and respond to changes in the balance of power that I t- talked about earlier. And as I said, you know, the, the, this construction of this large Navy, uh, while popular with the middle classes, certainly, was a, was a financial and strategic fiasco. Um, there's, no, there's no way around it. You know, but I, but I, would, you know, I would qualify that by saying that, you know, the the, the, uh, the blame that, that Buell often gets for, uh, for, for the souring of Anglo-German relations, you know, that, ha- that needs to be dated back to the Caprivi era or the failures of the Caprivi era, that is the era under Chancellor Caprivi, when there was a real attempt to try to um, improve relations with Britain with, with very little to show for it. And then, of course, we have the Transvaal crisis and the multiple threats that British uh, diplomats and foreign secretaries, secretaries uh, had uh, had made of war, could the Germans, you know, lift a finger to defend or to assert the the interests that they had in um, in, uh, in 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 the Boer republics? Um, uh, you know, the Germans had tried and failed to find uh, uh, you know various avenues to try and normalize relations with the British, and um, the the there was a real sense of frustration uh, by you know by 1897. That, that, that Germany really had no pressure points with Britain and that it was basically left to be a supplicant, um, left to begging for favors from the British. And so the attractions of gaining you know, a naval muscle, gaining, gaining some autonomy, uh, gaining some uh, credit, or I should say alliance worthiness, as the term was often used at the time, had its, had its attractions. And it was also a policy that had broader popularity with um, with the with the middle classes, you know the the the, the German middle classes were were often uh, the initiators of a lot of these ideas. I mean, you think of um, uh, Max Weber's uh, famous um, speech that he gave on uh, assuming a, a chair at Freiburg University, which was uh, very much uh, uh, very much in the spirit of this new world policy. There were many other publicists, many other writers that, of course, had 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 uh, pointed to the drift. Uh, in German foreign policy, the need to ultimately um, assert uh, German interests, uh, particularly in new areas of the world. I mean, you know, China came to mind, and of course, South America came to mind. South America was an, another important site of German significant trading interests. And so, the the you know the the, the sense that uh, that policy could not continue down that track was already well in place before uh, you know. Bulow took the helm of German foreign policy. Um, I, I do think that any chancellor would have been very challenged um, managing the geopolitics of Weltpolitik. I think it would have been very difficult for any chancellor, especially given the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of clear goals that the policy had. And of course, the, 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 the wild card of the Kaiser, who, of course, increasingly uh, saw foreign policy as his own exclusive domain and intervened sometimes very impetuously in many instances in ways that were counterproductive to, uh, to, to, to uh, you know, asserting Germany's interests, uh, whether colonial or whether, um, whether they were just these, you know, these spheres of interest, spheres of, spheres of interest in the rest of the world. 
So um, I think he, you know, he oftentimes gets more blame than he perhaps deserves. Um, uh, although I would agree with Lerman that he was oftentimes uh, not a person that, uh, you know, that uh, was preoccupied with the details. Uh, he was uh, very vain. And of course, he ingratiated himself uh, with the Kaiser, uh, you know, with quite uh, obsequious behavior, um, while at the same time always scheming behind the scenes. I mean, he was a master schemer. There are lots of unattractive features uh, that this figure had. I mean, his ambition was, was very raw, very, very clear. But um, uh, I think, you know, to a very significant extent, he was also very receptive, very attentive to these uh, middle class, this middle middle class opinion in Germany. He was probably the, the, the chancellor that was most attuned to German public opinion at the time, uh, certainly much more than his successor, Bettmann Holweg. So I think that side of it and the fact that he, you know, that, that he was very much aware of, of Germany's um, global footprint, uh, that is particularly also its various investments and interests overseas, um, that sometimes tends to be tends to be overlooked in the historiography, which is so keen to mainly pin blame uh, for Germany's, um, you know, increasing isolation by, by, by 1912 and to lay that then squarely at the feet of, of, of Bülow. I think that tends again to overlook the ways in which the global system was changing and the way that uh, the, you know, tectonic changes in the global balance of power, you know, such as, for example, the rise of Japan, the, defeat of the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War, the rise of the United States as a very significant power, that those processes themselves would reverberate back in Europe would also make it more difficult to pursue a world policy for a, a middling power like the, like, like the German Empire. I mean, it was really, uh, didn't have the resources and the, much less the reach of some of, the, some of those other rival powers that it, that it sought to emulate. So from your perspective, uh, Paul Kennedy was not correct in assigning uh, primary blame to Bülow for the drifting apart of the UK and Germany after 1897. Well, I think I think I think you know I do think that um, that uh, uh, Bülow bears some responsibility, or I should say, Bülow and Tirpitz and the Kaiser bear some responsibility in that. I mean, there was definitely you know the the the, the naval gambit that is the, the desired or the ambition to, to build a large um, battleship fleet uh, was, was unhelpful. But again, I think we have, to, we have to take seriously the fact that Germany was really not a very um, attractive alliance partner for the British, right? The, the, the prospect of any kind of alliance with, um, with the British was very, very uh, implausible, right? I mean, it was very, very unlikely that the two would ultimately a lie. And that has a lot to do with the fact that, that Britain's interests were so uh, diametrically opposite uh, the German Empire's interests in many, many key spheres, right? You know, the, the, the Germans were a new, inexperienced colonial empire uh, that, that offered the British very little in the way of colonial cover in its rivalry with France in Africa. The Germans uh, in you know, before really, I mean, uh, before it embarked on its um, colonial, or I should say it's, it's, its naval gambit, had no naval assets that could assist the British in their imperial security in 
the Near East, in South Asia, in China. Uh, the, the, the Germans, through their alliance with the Austro-Hungarians, also offered additional liabilities, defensive liabilities on the European continent. Um, and, and that, of course, was something that the British were very keen to avoid. So the, the idea that, that uh, there, was, uh, there was any prospect, really, of any kind of um, alliance with Britain, um, I think, is very questionable. And a lot of the more recent scholarship on this topic have really called that into question as well. And I've mentioned here Christopher Clark or John Charmley, um, Keith Wilson's older work, of course, makes precisely the same point as well. I think it needs to be taken very seriously. And the, the idea that, uh, that, you know, that it was basically Bulow uh, that, uh, that, that, that led to uh, or made, it made some kind of an alliance with Britain impossible, I think, is, is not altogether very convincing. There are other, other, other factors here that made an alliance with the British uh, very unlikely. And I think even the British themselves were very aware that, uh, that they had much more to gain uh, by resolving their differences with the French in Africa, by resolving their differences with the Russians in Persia and in South Asia, uh, that that offered much more in the way of imperial security uh, than any kind of alliance with the Germans. And one has to always remember that British security was always also tied up with its imperial security. And uh, the, 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 Anglo, uh, the Anglo-French Entente and the Anglo-Russian uh, Convention you know, are, are clearly uh, expressions, first and foremost, of, uh, of a desire to resolve disputes uh, outside of Europe. And it only then secondarily became um, a, uh, a European uh, quasi-alliance. Would it be not true to say that uh, you are more critical of uh, British policy than is uh, frequently found in the scholarly literature? Well, yeah, I think, I think there is um, a tendency to overlook the extent to which um, you know, Britain's uh, quite, quite impressive outward expansion, uh, really after around 1850, tends to be overlooked, I think, often in a lot of the historiography. Um, I think the, 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 there's a tendency to see uh, the, the, you know, the, the, these, this, this process as basically a peaceful process when in fact it of course involved and embroiled Britain in many, many wars overseas, right? Um, and that the, this outward expansion of Britain uh, with, uh, with, with its, you know, with the, the scramble in Africa and Asia uh, and the growing tensions with Russia, which uh, grew out of that, uh, that that led, of course, to a major naval arms race that was sparked by Britain in 1889 uh, with France and Russia. Uh, there were also shifts in naval strategy that came because of this uh, sprawling overseas empire that is the shift toward blockading ports in wartime um, that, of course, had profound implications for the other European powers. The multiple humiliations of Russia in the Crimean War and also in the, the Russia-Turkish War had destabilized the balance of power in Europe. Uh, and it had led uh, indirectly uh, not only to uh, German-Italian unification, but also to the Austro-German dual alliance of 1879, to the Franco-Russian alliance of 1894. 
So Britain's inability to hold its colonial empire together to provide for adequate defense for its sprawling global interests led directly to the Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902, the Triple Entente with France and Russia in 1907. We tend to overlook the fact that many of these processes had very little to do with Germany or German policy, even if exaggerated images of a German menace served to justify closer ties with France and Russia. In the book, you portray Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Secretary from December 1905 onwards, uh, as uh, animated by anti-German views. Why would you uh, make that, um, uh, how do you come to that interpretation? Well, I, I am familiar with uh, the, the newer writings on Gray, in particular Thomas Ott's uh, book um, on Edward Gray. I'm not entirely convinced by the arguments um, that are presented. I think he, you know, Edward Gray was certainly um, a friend of German culture and music, uh, and he was not, uh, you know, not a dyed-in-the-wool Germanophobe, but he relied very heavily on the advice of, of, of a very influential group in the foreign office uh, uh, in German affairs and, German, and, German, and, and on, on German uh, questions. Ayer Crow was very, very influential, um, as was Francis Bertie, uh, as was uh, Arthur Nicholson on Russian questions and German questions. And so, uh, you know, he, he, he delegated a great deal uh, of that um, expertise to these, to these individuals and others. And they definitely had um, a view of Germany that, um, that, that, that of course, uh, was, uh, saw Germany very much in menacing terms um, and saw Germany as a, uh, you know, as, as very much a threat to Britain, even though if we look at it, look at it objectively, I mean, Germany never, even after building its high seas fleet, never had the capacity to threaten the British Isles, uh, much less, you know, the British empire. Um, and the, you know, oftentimes uh, their perception of, of German menace was really a creature or a product of German naval propaganda, German colonial propaganda, or the, the propaganda of the Pan-German League. And oftentimes the utterances coming out of that, that very overheated kind of propaganda of the German empire around naval construction, around colonial policy, that then was used to justify um, closer relations with France and closer relations with Russia. So it was the perception of a menace, perception of a German menace, rather than the actual existence of one that ultimately uh, allowed for a shift in British foreign policy, a very profound one, that is from splendid isolation into the lap of uh, European alliance partners or quasi-alliance partners. And uh, of course, that was not popular with the, with the British public, public, particularly the closer relations with Russia. Um, but there's no question that, as I say, said before, uh, there was a clear logic to closer relations with France and Russia, uh, particularly as it related to rivalry in Africa, as it related to imperial security, um, uh, you know, normalizing relations, improving relations with France and Russia had clear dividends. It clearly took pressure off uh, those areas that were most vulnerable. And um, the, the German menace or the German threat, of course, was played up by these figures in um, in, 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 uh, in basically making the case for the Entente with, with France and the convention with Russia. It allowed basically 
uh, gray to um, move uh, in that direction. And uh, but at the same time, remain very cagey about what those obligations in fact meant. I mean, it basically, it basically involved Britain in, of course, uh, the, uh, the, the defensive uh, interests of France and it involved Britain uh, indirectly also in various Russian gambits in ways that were very dangerous, right? I mean, I think you we, people could say that Serbia was a vital interest to Russia in 1914, it was hundreds of miles away from the Straits. Uh, it, uh, you know, it was not that was not an issue that uh, on which uh, uh, Russia's status as a great power hinged in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and you know, embroiling Britain in an issue uh, as questionable as Serbia was the outgrowth ultimately of this Entente diplomacy. And there was no way that 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 Britain could leave Russia in the lurch in 1914 because of the, of the nightmare that it would ultimately drift into the German camp. So um, I think the, the reality is uh, that even though Edward Gray was not, to say, hostile to Germany or its culture, uh, his foreign policy did steer a course which utilized the image of a German menace or a German threat to improve relations with France and Russia and ultimately to forge the Triple Entente. Uh, would it be true to say that the so that for you the so-called Anglo-German detente of 1912-1914 was for Germany for the most part fruitless? Well, as I highlight in uh, uh, the the one of the chapters of my book, uh, one of the areas where they did uh, achieve significant um, traction in terms of improved relations was over the issue of the Baghdad Railway. The Baghdad Railway, which had been a thorn in the side of the British for a very long time, uh, that, uh, that was resolved. And they, of course, had come to agreements about both financing the railway and extending it uh, to the Persian Gulf or expending, uh, extending the, uh, the terminus of the Baghdad Railway uh, to the Persian Gulf. Um, and that, you know, that was one tangible fruit, but that was largely in the hands of, of, uh, of bankers. And financiers. It was really um, a private initiative uh, spearheaded uh, on the German side by Karl Helfrich um, and on the, on the British side, side Ernst um, Kassel and others who um, came to that agreement. I mean, the other aspects of that, I mean, the desire to perhaps uh, uh, alter the status or perhaps uh, bring the Portuguese colonies into closer union with the, with the, with the Germans or perhaps also territorial revisions uh, of, uh, allowing for uh, the uh, coastal, coastal islands uh, off of the coast of uh, Southwest Africa to be incorporated into the, German, to, into the German colonial empire. Those went nowhere. Uh, and there were also, of course, uh, discussions about potentially railways leading to, uh, into the Congo, uh, allowing access, greater access to, uh, to, the, to the ores other resources there that also those also went nowhere again in this instance here uh, because of uh, uh, you know potential re repercussions for Anglo-French relations and so the actual fruit of that effort at detente uh, was rather meager and that was certainly also the perception uh, of uh, on the German side that uh, that that you know Bettmann Holweg's policy 
had really not delivered much. Um, and it was, uh, you know, insult was added to this by the, uh, the, the intelligence that was forwarded to the Germans via a spy in the Russian embassy of, uh, you know, of, of, of Anglo-Russian naval talks uh, that were well underway uh, in the spring of 1914 that, uh, of course, was a shattering uh, revelation to Bethlen Holweg, who had, of course, cooperated with, with Edward Gray in diffusing the previous Balkan crises. Um, and it really called into question uh, how, uh, uh, you know, how honest the British were in their dealings with the Germans. And the Germans had, of course, been burned before over the issue of the Portuguese colonies when the, when the, when the British, of course, had reneged on agreements that they had made with the Germans uh, over the Portuguese colonies in the past. And so you know, even those discussions were things that Bedman Holbe could not actually reveal to the public because it would make him appear to be a bit of a dupe. Uh, and so he was, uh, he was uh, between a rock and a hard place in many respects in his uh, diplomacy, in his uh, relations with the British. And uh, again, Britain's desire to salvage the Anglo-Russian convention um, and the importance of Russia to Britain, British imperial security, uh, I think set clear limits on how far um, Anglo-German detente could in fact go. What, if any, was the relation between the failure of Weltpolitik and German policy in the July 1914 crisis? Well, I see a connection certainly um, to, the, to the previous Balkan wars. I mean, the, the previous Balkan wars in which Germany had played uh, a relatively constructive role in, in, in holding Austria back, um, that, of course, prevented an all-out European war from, from starting. Um, but it also had led to uh, souring relations with the, with the, with the Austrians. Um, and, uh, and, you know, by 1914, um, Austria is really, in effect, the only remaining reliable alliance partner of the, of the Germans. Um, and the fact that German Weltpolitik in Africa and in, in elsewhere in the world, East Asia in particular, that that, that, that had, had really not uh, produced much other than a very you know, isolated leasehold on the Shantung Peninsula and a few uh, islands in the South Pacific. Um, the, the, the tendency of German policy or world policy, you want to call it that, after 1912 was really uh, to uh, invest much more in uh, keeping the Ottoman Empire intact or preserving the Ottoman Empire. And of course, in investments in the Ottoman Empire, and of course, the cornerstone of that very thing was the Baghdad Railway. And so German, German policy, uh, foreign policy and Weltpolitik was by 19. 14, much more continental, much less, much less global. And so I think the, there was an underestimation um, on the part of, um, of the British, certainly, uh, of the importance, again, of, the, of, of, of Germany's ties to Austria, but also its investments in, uh, of course, Ottoman Turkey uh, and the, the importance of the Balkans also, right, as a kind of informal sphere of interest of the Germans in Germany's broader strategy. So I think, you know, this, this perception that the Germans had of, a, you know, of, of trying to defend a, 
a continental European or Balkan Ottoman position, uh, that that played a role uh, certainly in, uh, in, in the July crisis diplomacy. It basically meant that in any uh, new crisis, which was sparked, of course, by the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, that the Germans would seek to isolate that conflict to, um, to Austria and Serbia, uh, would not want to exercise undue pressure on the Austrians uh, on account of how that had backfired uh, in terms of relations with Austria uh, after, the, after the Second Balkan War. So the desire was to isolate the conflict to Serbia and Austria. Uh, the desire certainly was not to spark an all-out European war. Um, but that, of course, uh, meant that, that, that Germany was, of course, very reliant on swift action by the Austrians to take advantage of the moment, the advantage over the outrage uh, over, over regicide in 1914 to impose a fait accompli on the, on the Ottomans. Of course, the, Aust you know, the Austrians uh, were themselves divided over that policy, dithered, delayed, and it was you know, weeks later only that they came up with their ultimatum. And by that point, of course, uh, the, the, the outrage over the assassination had subsided in international public opinion. The French had been or were on a state visit to Russia and insisted very strongly on a very firm Russian position vis-a-vis -vis the Serbian question. Uh, and the, the Russians, of course, themselves uh, were uh, firmly of the opinion or became firmly of the, or arrived at the opinion that they would not back down to German um, uh, and Austrian bullying over the matter, matter of Serbia because they themselves perceived that they had in the past given in too much and had lost prestige. So the, you know, the, there's, there's definitely a line that we can see from Germany's blank check to Austria that leads ultimately uh, to this very risky isolation strategy and ultimately enables basically processes to unfold that lead to an all-out European and then world war. But I think we tend to overinflate the importance of that because it's the first, uh, first of the dominoes to fall. Um, many other dominoes had to fall for this to, of course, ultimately lead to, to a world war. Um, and um, I, my, you know, my, my perception is that one has to see uh, the, the July crisis very much as an outgrowth of experiences uh, that the Germans had, 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 had gleaned from the previous Balkan crises. And of course, Germany is increasingly uh, vulnerable, a perception of vulnerability that uh, made the alliance with Austria, of course, all the more important made, of course, preserving Ottoman Turkey all the more important for Germany's, um, Germany's position in Europe. It appears from the book that you believe that, great, that the Great War was for England a preventative war. Why, if so, exactly? Well, I think of all of the great powers that were embroiled in the July crisis, Britain was the only power that uh, was not, um, uh, you know, was, whose, whose territorial integrity was not uh, potentially uh, threatened. Um, it was a war of choice in the sense that uh, it had no formal uh, naval obligations or military obligations to France or Russia. Um, and the decision was made uh, to intervene ostensibly on the issue of Belgian neutrality. But as we know, there were, of course, you know, 
many other reasons, in particular also the, the quasi-alliance status over the relations with France, the fact that France had restationed much of it, many of its military assets to the south of France, that the, the northern French coast was more prone. And of course, I've already mentioned the importance of the Anglo-Russian Convention, which was in deep trouble in 1914, the desire to salvage that. Um, those were all things that ultimately played into the decision to enter the war. And Britain, of course, believed that it could fight the war largely as a naval conflict, uh, that uh, you know, the strategy of uh, economic warfare and naval blockade would ultimately allow Britain to fight a war on the cheap, would make it inexpensive. And so that also added to the attraction of intervening. Um, you know, the, the, the actual conflict we did get, of course, is a, it was, a, was a conflict that ultimately sapped Britain of its resources, its manpower, indebted it to the United States, ultimately paved the way for the destruction of the entire British Empire, or I should say the loss of the entire British Empire, um, or most of it anyway. Um, so, you know, the decision to intervene was, uh, for Britain, in any, in any case, a disaster. I think, uh, I think it was uh, not in the interests of Britain to intervene um, in 1914, viewed uh, through that lens. Um, and I agree with, with Neil Ferguson, with others, that, that this was a, a grave uh, miscalculation. And, of course, it was the ultimate outgrowth of this misguided secretiveness of uh, Edward Gray's Entente Diplomacy. The British public, the British cabinet, were not fully aware of the extent to which Britain's um, own interests, its own security, its own imperial security, its own domestic security, were now bound up with France and Russia. Uh, and uh, the, the, the decision to, uh, to enter the war, uh, you know, the, the, those, that decision was inextricably tied up with the importance of France and Russia to Britain's imperial and domestic security, um, at least the perception in the mind again of, uh, of 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 Edward Gray and other and a few other members of the cabinet. I mean, of course, the, the the decision to intervene was was until the very last minute very unpopular. It was not something that that uh, most of the cabinet supported. And you know, the Germans, of course, uh, with their Schlieffen plan and of course the ultimatum to to Belgium, created facts on the ground that made it easier for Britain to enter into the war. Um, but again, the background of Britain's own imperial and domestic security, at least the way in which the Entente had become a quasi-alliance, that is something that pulled Britain into the conflict, inevitably. Um, and this is a point that, um, that many scholars have, have, have made. I'm hardly the first to, to do so. How and why did what you label the fleet professors uh, become in the Great War what uh, is labeled the Ubo professors? Well, many of the, the, the figures that I've followed through the book, um, many of these economists were, had been very active in naval propaganda. They had been very active in Tirpitz's uh, desire to uh, prepare the German public through a propaganda barrage for the Navy bills, um, particularly the, the Navy bill of, of, of 1897, and then the Navy Bill of, of, of 1900. Those two Navy Bills, of course, were the key bits of legislation that uh, started Germany on the path of becoming a great naval power with the battleship Navy. So they were, they were very much familiar with uh, the tactics and the, 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 the process of uh, propagandizing. They had been very active, had been strong supporters of the fleet. Um, 
And uh, so it was only natural that in the war, uh, they became very active in also trying to influence public opinion and influence ultimately also the, uh, the policymakers to pursue a more aggressive naval strategy. You know, the, the tragedy, of course, of building the high seas fleet for the Germans was that it neither served as a deterrent, that is, it never prevented war, you get a war, and it proved to be a largely useless weapon in the First World War, at least not one that, that, that they could use to challenge Britain head, head on because Germany was outnumbered and undergunned vis-a-vis the Royal Navy. And so the fleet basically was largely left to rusting in harbor. And so there were really no uh, naval assets available apart from the submarine, which of course had been a very much neglected weapon under Tirpitz's uh, battleship strategy uh, that could ultimately uh, break a naval blockade or at least attempt to offer retaliation against the British for the naval blockade. The naval blockade was an, was an immensely effective uh, strategy on the British part. That is a, a distant blockade between Scotland and Norway, and then in the channel, that basically interdicted all traffic to the North Sea. Um, and uh, the, you know, by 1915 uh, and 1916, it was very clear that, uh, that the Germans um, were facing really a very dire uh, food situation, uh, and increasingly severe shortages of key raw materials for war making. Uh, and so the, 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 the professors that had been involved in naval propaganda became very much uh, advocates uh, on their own, really, uh, for a more aggressive strategy, uh, using uh, submarines then uh, as a form of retaliation uh, against the British for the naval blockade, which they argued was in violation of international law, right? It was in violation of, um, of, of various agreements that had been signed before the war um, that, of course, had restricted what kinds of goods could be considered contraband, and it imposed certain kinds of regulations, certain kinds of um, rules on how blockades could be conducted. Uh, distant blockades of the kind that the Brit- British had were illegal. Um, they, could not be, they could not be enforced. Um, but nonetheless, as, as I said, they were very effective. And that meant, of course, also restricting or controlling, regulating the trade of neutrals like uh, the Dutch. The Dutch, of course, the ships were also searched uh, and any kind of uh, goods that were considered well beyond Dutch domestic needs, potentially for re-export to, to Germany, were also interdicted, also prohibited. So the, um, the desire uh, to, to push German policy in the direction of a more aggressive stand vis-a-vis Britain using not just submarines, but also Zeppelins uh, was something that they actively propagated, actively supported uh, in, uh, during the war. Um, and uh, you know, as we, as we know, of course, that policy, which was based upon Phileas' flawed, um, flawed assumptions and, of course, uh, bad information about the extent to which Britain could be cut off from its grain supplies and from its raw materials and the extent to which that would cause a crisis in Britain. Um, this is well known. Uh, and, of course, the, 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 uh, the submarine blockade or the sub- submarine retaliation strategy, the Zeppelin retaliation strategy 
did 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 not knock Britain out of the war. In fact, it was you know, the, the the number of ships that were in fact sunk was was minuscule compared to the actual ships uh, calling at British ports. And of course, the British could very easily replace the ships that were destroyed with new construction in Britain as well as in the rest of the empire. So the so the strategy was a you know was a was a failure in the sense that it did not in fact break the blockade and in fact it worsened relations with the United States and was of course uh, following numerous incidents um, uh, then quietly suspended by the Germans only to be resumed again as is notorious then in 1917 right in, in, in this early spring of 1917 which of course then ultimately draws the United States into the war. So I say they're fleet professors uh, first, of course, uh, discussing their naval propaganda, and I then uh, also then call them U-boat professors or submarine professors because of their advocacy for an aggressive U-boat war against the British. Why do you say that Veilpolitik was, quote, less peculiarly liberal than than an intensified and in war radicalized and deformed version of liberal imperialism, unquote? Well, I think the reason I make that claim is that the, uh, the ambition of securing a settler colony, which maybe the last gambit for that, Morocco in 1911, um, that continued to animate many uh, German nationalists. It continued to be a very uh, important part of, um, uh, of, of, of German imperial identity. And of course, it was also an acute source of embarrassment uh, uh, to the Germans, because unlike France, unlike Britain, uh, they did not have a viable settler colony. Uh, the only thing they had was Southwest Africa, and of course that was an extremely arid area uh, in which, uh, of course, white settlers did uh, have a, a, a presence, but nonetheless also sparked a, a terrible colonial war, which ultimately led to a genocidal uh, campaign against the Herero Nama people there. So it was you know, the, the, there was there was no nothing like Algeria. There was nothing like um, nothing like Canada. Nothing like Australia, New Zealand, that the Germans had, and so the the ambition nonetheless remained to to secure uh, settler t- settler colonies uh, and to secure the resources that colonies could provide. As that became especially acute then in the war, as Germany was cut off from much world trade, and so the gaze shifted eastward for these sorts of things. And one of the figures that I cover in the book, uh, Max Zering, who was a very close student of American agricultural conditions, the Homestead Act and settler colonialism, he himself became a very strong advocate uh, of turning the territory, which was known as Oberost, that is the area that was occupied in Poland and in the Baltic states and parts of Western Russia, into a contiguous colonial empire. That is creating in effect a contiguous settler colony to the east. Um, that idea uh, that of, of colonizing European spaces, that uh, is uh, and did become in war a distorted, uh, an exaggerated, or radical uh, kind of settler colonialism. Uh, and in many ways, we can see the line of con- continuity from that to national socialism, to, to Nazism, of course, which you know, then viewed the east is basically an entire, um, uh, entire uh, area to be colonized, uh, of course, with the most violent, vicious, genocidal uh, techniques. 
um, uh, of conquest and exploitation that you can imagine. Um, but the war itself uh, served to um, distort and to radicalize what had been liberal imperial ambitions, uh, liberal imperial ambitions to secure a, a settler colony somewhere in the world, uh, to gain the advantages of settler colonies, that is the initiative, the qualities of, of entrepreneurship, self-government that supposedly gestated in settler colonies overseas. Uh, that idea, a very liberal idea, um, uh, did very much uh, still shape uh, German uh, colonial ambitions, imperial ambitions, were part of a German imperial mindscape, as I said, um, that, that, that was projected to the East and that continued to be a very potent um, uh, image, uh, even as Germany lost its overseas colonies, uh, even as Germany was reduced by the Versailles Treaty uh, to, a, to a much smaller territory in Europe. And in fact, that very process simply sparked con colonial nostalgia. It reinforced the importance ultimately of colonies or of settler colonies, of colonies as sources of raw materials, as colonies as sources of food, as colonies as markets for uh, manufactured goods, especially as the world descended into depression, and descended into protectionism, as we, of the sort that we get then in the 1930s. And so the, the ambitions ultimately that were then taken to the most perverse uh, uh, lengths by the Nazis had uh, their origin, I think, in what was originally a liberal idea, a liberal imperial idea of, of settler colonial uh, territories um, that, as I said, in the German case had been thwarted, had never really, had never really been fulfilled. So that's what that's what I mean by that. If you wanted briefly, if you wanted people to take one thing away from this book, what would it be? Well, I think it would be that we need to rethink the way we understand Imperial Germany, and by doing that, uh, by uh, in, in in doing that, we reintegrate the extent to which the rest of the world shaped Germany's perceptions of itself. Uh, we we need to re. Think the ways in which the Germans themselves, um, in devising an imperial strategy, in articulating Weltpolitik, but also, as I was just saying, also began to project that uh, eastward, especially in the First World War, and then in the interwar period, and then under National Socialism. There's a continuity there, right? There, is, there are connections between Weltpolitik and the uh, and, and Nazi conquest. Um, they're indirect, they're not, they're not direct, but they are definitely there. We want to understand that mindscape uh, that, that entertained these kinds of policies. You have to understand the period of engagement with the rest of the world that I recount in the book. The engagement with Japan, with the, the close observations of the United States, the close observations, as I suggested, of the Homestead Act, of westward uh, settlement, of colonists in the United States and Canada. These processes were very, very important in shaping that German imperial mindscape, in shaping expectations uh, in the minds of many Germans of what colonies should and could deliver. And so the, the reference point of the United States, the reference point of Canada, the reference point also of Russia, which was observed before the First World War very closely, those are very important for understanding why Germany goes down the path 
that it does in the First World War, particularly its, its war aims in the First World War, its, its imperial gambit, ultimate to expand its territory into Oberost, to annex territories of the, of the Baltic states of Poland and parts of Western Russia. And then eventually, then in the, 19, uh, in, in, in the 1930s and 40s, of course, the, 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 um, the Nazi colonial empire uh, has yet another example of that sort of thing. We have to see this as a continuum. We have to see this as connected, not as in any way separated. And um, the ways in which that imperial mindscape came together can only be understand, uh, under, understood if we grasp uh, how uh, the points of information were gathered, how people uh, gained those impressions of the rest of the world and how they were then articulated within the German metropole, uh, within German politics, in things like colonial policy, in things like uh, naval propaganda, uh, in the debates uh, that, that, of course, animated uh, Germany in the pre-war period over its colonial empire, over its naval strategy, over its foreign policy, over the failures of its foreign policy clearly as well. So that's what I would like uh, the reader to take away is to basically globalize our perspective of German history um, and to globalize our perspective of German imperialism. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Uh, thank you.